Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. In the old days before the coronavirus, you couldn't finish an issue of a serious journal or newspaper without reading something about the dangers of cyberspace. Whether the risk is terrorist recruiting, Russian trolling, industrial sabotage, espionage, or outright cyber war, it's clear that this new domain has governments worried. Unfortunately, because cyberspace is a relatively new and quickly evolving environment, policymakers have lacked a clear consensus about the nature and rules of conflict in cyberspace. This has made it difficult to develop coherent strategies for dealing with cyber threats. But things may be changing. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission was established in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2019 to develop a consensus on a strategic approach to defending the United States in cyberspace against cyber attacks of significant consequences. The final report was just released on March 11th. Joining us today to tell us about the commission's work, its report, and what it all means is Brandon Valeriano, a senior advisor to the commission, as well as a senior fellow here at Cato and the Bren Chair of Military Innovation at the Marine Corps University. Brandon, welcome to Power Problems. Hello, glad to be here. Fantastic. Uh, Before we start, I'll just tell the audience that in the age of coronavirus, we are recording this remotely on uh, every one of us is in a different room. So if you notice a little bit of audio degradation, please bear with us during during these crazy times. All right, Brandon, let's start big picture. Uh, Why was this commission established? What were its goals and what was the approach you guys took? Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, A lot of people claim credit for starting the commission. But the basic impetus for the beginning is to try and evaluate cyber strategy. We haven't had a good national level exercise to figure out where we're going in terms of cyber strategy. And the reality is most departments have kind of gone it alone. They have made solo determinations of what they were going to do in cyberspace. But there wasn't a coordinating function. And that was a big question for a lot of us. Another big thing was the evolution and the rise of persistent engagement as the Cyber Command strategy back in 2017, 2018. Um, That led to a lot of people to question the nature of that strategy, to suggest that that was a strategy we needed to kind of go forward with. And um, if we were going to go forward with it, we needed to really think about a methodology for evaluating the strategy. So that's why we came up with the Solarium Commission. That's why it's modeled after the Eisenhower Solarium Commission to determine a Cold War strategy. Much in the same way, our goal is to determine a national level cyber strategy to deal with the current times and the current reality, which is constant and uh, evolving cyber attacks against the nation state. Right. So this is a, a bipartisan commission, was it not? And, and big staff, a lot, lot of effort. This is This is a pretty big project. Yeah, um, it's bipartisan, and you read quite often that people suggest that this is the only bipartisan room in D.C. I didn't really see anyone promoting a Democratic, Republican agenda. We didn't talk about candidates. It was very straight, middle of the road. We need to do something good for this country. We need to figure out a cyber strategy. Um, There were, I believe, 12 commissioners and uh, over 30 staff. Um, a lot of the staff were detailed from the various organizations like Department of Defense, Department of Energy, FBI, and quite a few of them, strangely enough, were academics. We were heavily staffed by academics. Um, the commission was set up in the three task force. The first task force was to look at prevailing strategies. The second was defense, and the third was entanglement or norms. 
the first task force, and that kind of was modeled after George Keenan's task force and the Slarum Commission, was heavily filled with academics. So we had a lot of people involved, like uh, Erica Bogart was our lead, Jackie Snyder, Sean Longerin, uh, myself, and others were involved there. Fantastic. All right. So the, the report just came out. People are starting to write articles, bits and pieces about it now. Um, they're going to be doing that for some time because it's a it's kind of a massive tome, big work. More than 80 specific policy recommendations came out of it. But what would you summarize as its main themes? What are, what are the big strategic takeaways or, or recommendations that you guys, lessons, if you will, that you guys found? So the big recommendations were mainly at the national level and at the executive level. We found there was no national security level coordinator. So we have a recommendation for that. We have recommendations to enable CISA within DHS. CISA is a cybersecurity infrastructure and security agency. And we also have recommendations to help support the State Department, which lost their higher position in cybersecurity. Uh, the main thing, though, is to develop a whole-of-nation approach to cybersecurity. We had a lot of departments building whole-of-department strategies, but they were not coordinating across government and into the private sector. So that's a big advance forward, to rethink how we're going to communicate and coordinate at the national level. I'd like to sort of drill down on a couple of things, um, because I think there's 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 one thing that's very clearly highlighted in the report, and that's um, the need for private sector and government to sort of be on the same page, be working together on this stuff. So I wondered if you could talk a little more on that. And then the second thing is, um, my impression just from skimming the report is that there's not as much talk about... Um, intelligence versus military. There's sort of a really strong focus on deterrence and, you know, cyber attacks, but far less on sort of the, um, what, what cyber stuff is often used for, which is more intelligence gathering than anything else. So I was wondering if you could speak a little to both of those. Yeah, to the second part, it, it is kind of surprising, but what has happened is the DOD has taken initiative in cyber strategy. And the intelligence organizations, um, leaving out the NSA, which is directly connected to Cyber Command, um, have very much kind of seated ground there. And they don't really come up with any sort of national level strategies for cybersecurity. And I'm not really sure why. I think that's an interesting story to tell at some point. But I mean, this is a key challenge that the majority of action that happens in this domain, as, as I've written about repeatedly, is in the intelligence um, uh, domain. Um, but in terms of developing strategy for the intelligence agencies, I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if we've actually had a great conversation about how we actually do that. And if you look at the literature, there's more about there's more criticism on what you don't do, not what you do do to embolden national security and to help support the national mission. So that's an interesting development. Uh, on terms, in terms of working with the private sector, this is the first time I've ever worked in national security, where I've ever had, where I've ever had anyone in the private sector bluntly come out and say to me, "We are more powerful than the government. We have more capability and capacity than the government." And in many ways, that's true. In many ways, that's wrong. But for us to have a cohesive national strategy on cybersecurity, we need to work with the private sector. And as I've said for a long time, that deterrence is impossible unless you have a key private sector strategy there, unless you have a key conception of what deterrence means in terms of defense of the nation state and survival in the first place. And that's something we very much were looking towards and looking towards buffing up here is to make sure that it's not so much deterrence by denial, 
but making sure that a lot of targets are off the table and uh, off limits. Well, perhaps we could dig into to that just a little further, um, because, I mean, I think, you know, we, we were talking private sector versus government, but I think if people aren't particularly interested in studying the sector, they don't know a lot about it, they may not be actually thinking about what the important parts of our infrastructure, of our national infrastructure are. And it is very heavily focused on the private sector, electricity production, big banks and the stock market, um, you know, vital supply chains for things like medicine or medical services. You know, those are all in the private sector, but they definitely fall under the category of things that you want to deter attacks on. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess, just really interested in how the the commission sort of tried to interact with those actors. We had over 300 engagements with actors in the private sector. Um, we spent a lot of time interviewing, talking to everyone. And what was fairly interesting is that the most coordination we have with the private sector is in the financial sector. The financial sector works very well with the government and they share a lot of intelligence and information. The other sectors of the economy do not do that. There is no coordination and collaboration amongst any other sectors. And the other interesting thing is the threat intelligence firms. I don't want to name names, but these rising new security firms are becoming like private contactors. And in many ways, they do not want the government involved because they want the space for this for themselves so they can uh, sell protection. So there's a kind of a a problem there and a barrier in that many people depend on these cyber intelligence firms to support their missions when it's not exactly clear that that's the best choice for them. That's very interesting. I, I get nervous whenever I hear somebody say we need a whole nation approach to anything because it starts sounding like either A, um, there's no way to organize that big a posse, or B, uh, it starts. To, I start to worry about sort of cartelism and 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 you know the big private sector working with government, mostly for their own benefit and not necessarily for the benefit of everyone else. Brandon, what's your sense of where where do I mean are are, are is the private sector really, you know, going to be able to be helpful here? I think that's the real question, and that's where the bread will be buttered in this report. There's a lot of things that need to be done, especially in terms of intelligence sharing between both sides. And breaking down those walls and breaking down some of the protections that some people have here to not really share information. And that has been held back quite a bit. Um, hopefully that can be done. Some of the things we've done here, like liability protections and things like that, can hopefully open us up towards better information sharing. At some point, though, we need to get like the FAA and have some form of national level reporting for any cybersecurity incidents. But we're just not there right now because there's a lot of um, liability on companies who may report incidents and they may have their customers kind of come back at them, sue them, whatever. And so they have not been very forthcoming about the nature of cyber attacks. And that's been a challenge in that we don't have a good sense of information. And one of the recommendations in the report is to build a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. Um, that's something we need to really look towards and figure out how we're going to enable information sharing, because that's just the basic first step we need to have a national level cybersecurity strategy. That's interesting. Well, that's a pretty good pivot to uh, one of the other sort of key themes of the report, but I also know about of your own research, Brandon, and that is 
the question of cyber deterrence, you know, it's hard for the government to deter things if they can't even figure out how many things they're trying to stop from happening in the first place. Um, So how, you know, how do we enhance uh, cyber deterrence? And and what did the commission uh, do to figure that out? Yeah, I think the main way to do is to look at it in in three parts. Um, And, you know, the main thing and the most important thing might be imposing costs. And that's where Cyber Command and NSA come in. And that's where persistent engagement and defend forward come in. Trying to figure out how we can uh, cause friction at the contact layer to deter and compel adversaries to change their behavior in cyberspace. What has become very clear since 2016 is that we have possibly deterred large-scale attacks on our critical infrastructure but attacks below the threshold of armed conflict and the more nuisance level attacks we have not been able to stop or deter. And that's something we're very much looking towards figuring out in the future. So the first step would be to impose costs. The second step would be to ensure that we are able to deny benefits of the adversary through defensive maneuvers, securing our elections, protecting critical infrastructure, and assuring the continuation of the economy. And then finally, we need to shape behavior a bit better. We need to think about entanglement strategies. We need to build partnerships. But even more important than, say, the normative edge in cybersecurity is really the regulatory edge. And the United States has really failed there. China is really outpacing us there in terms of submitting regulations to regulatory bodies, that we're not submitting studies, we're not submitting white papers there. And that's really key. The shape of cybersecurity institutionally in the international sector is really shaped by international regulatory bodies. And that's where the norms really come from. But that's not something we have a clear strategy on. And the State Department has been neutered, so to speak, since um, the Trump administration, because there isn't that much of a focus on entanglement and engagement at the, um, the, the international level. So, I mean, I, the trick with deterrence is knowing when you did it, isn't it? It's, it's hard for me to imagine um, being able to claim sort of confidently that we've, we've deterred a lot of big stuff with with cyber means how much how much of of cyber deterrence do you think Brandon is actually using cyber tools and how much of it is just being a militarily powerful country I, I think it's both and the report is very clear that it requires both military and non-military means to ensure protection of um, the defense industrial base and the nation state from cyber attacks that both kind of go hand in hand and you cannot have one without the other. But the most basic thing for any strategy is clarity and credibility. And I think we've lacked that for a long time in the U.S. national cyber strategy in that if you were to ask 10 practitioners at any time in the last four years what our national strategy is and how you describe it, I don't think any of those 10 would agree with each other, alone what would our adversaries and what would our allies think. So establishing some sort of clarity on what Defend Forward is, on what our layered cyber deterrence strategy is really an imperative because communication and signaling are one of the most important aspects of cybersecurity in terms of deterrence. And I always go back to the Dr. Strangelovian quote of, you know, well, if you wanted that to happen, why didn't you tell them, eh? And that's not what we have been doing. We have not been signaling our strategy very well so far. We have not really told the opposition exactly what we don't want done. And that needs to be done to ensure security moving into the future. 
I, I was going to ask, um, so is this something that you foresee as sort of achievable during the Trump administration? Um, so I think I think at the end of the Obama era, people were sort of starting to talk about this. The Obama administration took some steps. Um, they had a strategy. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I agreed with it, but things like sort of naming and shaming or trying to prosecute Chinese intelligence officers, um, things like that. Um, and then we come into the Trump era, and to be perfectly honest, I have not heard anything at all from this administration um, on this topic. So is this a report that is aimed at sort of the highest levels of government at the moment? Or is this a report that's um, either sort of aimed at the next administration or maybe even just trying to work under the level of, of sort of the White House and, and try to work with, you know, sort of the, the bureaucracy rather than the um, than high level government functions? So I think there's three strategies here. There's the low hanging fruit, there's the things that need to get done that everyone kind of agrees on. Cyber mission force reform, National Security Council, um, things like that. And then there's the things we need to engage with the Trump administration on that they are likely going to be very receptive of, mainly because a lot of the commissioners came from these key executive level players in cybersecurity. And we constantly were in, in talks with Cyber Command and the DOD during this process. So there is a lot of executive level support from, um, fr from the nation state and from the bureaucracy. The question is exactly what's going to happen at the top. And of course, they're very distracted at this time. But the third level is, of course, this sort of Mark Montgomery always talked about this. The executive director will talk about the break glass in case of emergency strategy or even the strategy of, well, what happens next? What happens if we have a new administration that's receptive of taking all these recommendations? And that's something we also wrote towards. So we have a lot of specific recommendations that we're writing in the legislative language, a lot of testimony that's going to go on. There's a lot of internal lobbying to get the executive department uh, branch to be on the same page here. But there's also a lot that can be done with a new administration, or there's a lot that can be done if, in the worst case, we have a national level tragedy like 9-11. And that's something that we need to think about towards the future because, of course, the last national level branch that was built was the DHS. And I think a lot of people would agree at some point we're going to need some sort of cyber level or IO level, national level branch to ensure information flow. Uh, but getting there is going to be a complex and tough process because no one likes to build new bureaucracies in the United States right now. And excuse me sort of for just diverging us from the report again. Um, but, you know, I did want to ask you about a related topic that you sort of I, I saw you um, musing about on social media the other day, um, which is whether cyber will continue to be such a big topic in the aftermath of the current circumstances, um, you know, because it seems to me that, um, you know, we worry about cyber attacks undermining our critical infrastructure like the banks or the stock market. We worry about terrorist attacks taking stuff down. But what's happening right now with the coronavirus is having many of the same impacts. And it's not something you can deter. It's not something you can fight. Um, and, and you were sort of speculating on social media that perhaps cyber would become less important to policymakers going forward. And I, I guess I just want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I think the deeper issue is I'm dumbfounded how far we've gone in the wrong path in cybersecurity. And I'm dumbfounded how long it's taken us to even get to, the, to this point. And that we have a lot of the lesser lights um, or really guiding strategy in this area. 
And that's been a problem. And we lost a lot of initiative in the 90s after uh, we started the war on terror because a lot of people who were studying information warfare went to study counterinsurgency and terrorism. And the field of cybersecurity had to be destroyed and rebuilt. And I think we're getting there now. But the real question a lot of us have is um, we're not so much skeptical of cyber issues. We're a bit more moderate. And we suggest that these issues should really be placed in the intelligence espionage domain. And um, that's a challenge for a lot of people. And I've always said that climate change and now I would argue that pandemics are more critical than cybersecurity. But on the other hand, the challenge is is that we are obviously becoming more and more dependent on cybersecurity issues and on the internet. That these next three weeks or four months are going to be a national level stress test on our infrastructure in um, in the internet. And that really exposes our dependency there. And that's the challenge, is that even strong states are very much weak because they are dependent so much on the internet. And I really worry long term about what I call cyber repression, using digital tools to maliciously harm and hunt down adversaries within a nation state. That I think these cyber tools are more useful against individuals than against states. And what happens in the future as we become more isolated and have you know, locked ourselves down, government has greater control over our access to information in authoritarian states and even non-authoritarian states. And how will that lead to evolution of society overall? These are huge major questions. And I obviously wouldn't put cybersecurity as a top two national level threat, but I think it's up there. And I think a lot of the reason it's up there is because we haven't had clear grown adult level conversations about these issues. More often than not, these cybersecurity issues are inflated due to our own fears and the things we watch in TV, like Mr. Robot or the Battlestar Galactica example of the enemy alien force coming and destroying us all because our networks are vulnerable. Those sorts of stories really dominate or the ghost fleet stories really dominate. But those are based on fictions. And there's a lot of the reality that we need to deal with that we haven't dealt with yet. So Brandon, so would you say then or to what extent would you say that some kind of strategic consensus is emerging? And, and does this report sort of represent kind of, you know, is it a, is it a, a symptom that there's an emerging consensus or is it, is, or, and or is it going to help create uh, that emerging consensus? I think it's going to help create that emerging consensus. And I think we had a lot of people really trying to think through this process and we had a really strong conversation about these issues. And I don't think we've really had that before because a lot of the challenge of cyber strategy is a lot of people are using incorrect assumptions, fiction, or even horrible case studies to generate strategy. And quite often, or the way our strategy was until recently, was a means without an ends. And this is really my challenge to persistent engagement because persistent engagement as a theory of cybersecurity spacecraft doesn't have an ends. They believe that conflict in cyberspace is persistent and always ongoing. Therefore, you can never achieve an end state of victory. And to have a strategy where that is the core is reprehensible to me. I don't think that matches the needs of a national level strategy. And I think we're having a clear conversation about how to move beyond that and how to think about an architecture for defending forward in a way that recognizes the challenges and opportunities that this new strategy can bring towards us. Let me let me just follow up and, and poke on that a bit because it, it 
you know, maybe unsurprisingly, but in the, the sort of the politicized sort of national security environment that we we unfortunately inhabit today, uh, it, I, I, I see that coming up with strategic consensus is now much more difficult than it would have been, say, 30 years ago um, when, you know, there was still politics, of course, but but there it seemed like a more technocratic approach to security issues was pretty common and you could find a lot of agreement uh, across the aisles. But to to my eye and, and as a you know, real civilian on cyber issues, I, I sense that there is going to be a divide between hawks who continue to support a persistent engagement worldview and kind of strategy, and then more restrained or dovish uh, folks who would prefer the sort of layered deterrence kind of a concept that, that you prefer, Brandon. Do, do you see that as a, as a danger? I don't really know how the field's going to shape up. I, I think really the danger is people are being selfish more often than not. And P, I mean, people and institutions. I think in terms of cybersecurity, I've seen a lot of Graham Allison bureaucratic politics stuff going on. A lot of where you sit determines how you want to act. And obviously, that's not the best way to build strategy. But that's how we really kind of operated from the Department of State, Department of Defense. CISA in the DHS, the intelligence communities, everyone's going in it their own way. And that's really a challenge and that's really a problem. And getting beyond the selfish impulses of the bureaucracy is something we really need to work towards. And that's why you need support from the top. That's why you need a national security level coordinator. That's why you need a strong executive that's really interested and engaged on these issues. And we just don't have that right now. I believe Rudy Giuliani is still our national cyber coordinator or something at some point. And we kept getting reminded about that um, through the life of the commission. Good God. Um, well, moving swiftly on from that. Um, so is, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you should think we should be covering? I know there's some things in the report that are meant to be controversial. Do you perhaps want to talk about those? I think the controversies mainly come from this bureaucratic politics perspective that a lot of people, you know, a lot of the things I heard during the process were kind of a what about me statement? What about my department? How is this going to affect me? How are these new reporting standards going to affect my operations? And I think those are positive things. Those are things that need to happen. But a lot of people, as you probably know, with working from with government sometimes, a lot of people don't want to do things that are outside their mission description um, because it just means more work for them. And I think that's not how we're going to achieve a better national level cybersecurity strategy. Um, in terms of things that were left out, um, to me, the thing that hurts the most and that would hurt you know, all of us here um, is education. I didn't have time to deal with that. We didn't have time to really kind of have a task force to deal with that issue. We didn't really look at the national security, um, uh, the national security agency programs that are accrediting and hiring people from colleges. We didn't really have a good look at the boot camps, at the lower level youth education, and we didn't really have a good look at the policy community in D.C. Because I quite often come, you know, I'll go to a school like, you know, one of the big G schools, and I'll run into some adjunct who says they're in charge of cybersecurity policy, yet they haven't worked in cybersecurity since the Obama administration and are not really active in the field. So I think there's a lot of people running around trying to... Um, embolden their cybersecurity credentials at the education level, and I don't think they really meet the needs of what we need to do in terms of this issue. I think people are really being educated very poorly in this area, and I'm not sure how we fix that, and that's something I really would like to focus on in the future, 
Um, but how I get there without a big task force like we just had for this commission is a challenge. To clarify, when, when you say education, um, do you mean of people in the policy realm or are we talking about the actual people um, you know, engaged in sort of defensive network security kind of stuff? Which, which, which are we talking about? I, I mean everything. I mean going from the kids in the boot camps to the high school students selected for college-level programs and scholarships that are committing to work with the government to college-level programs that are hiring people directly to the National Security Agency, to the policy community at the, um, I forget what you call them, but the, the, the sort of the policy school level. All those things are deficient right now, and all those things need to be improved. And that's where other countries are doing a lot better at identifying talent and pushing it through the, the process a lot better. We are a bit better on the technical side. The problem with the technical side is twofold. One, the technical side often doesn't have a good um, recognition of the need for policy and strategy. Who is your adversary? That's very important. No matter how technical it is, you need to know who you're fighting and what that style is. And I think we often avoid that or ignore that quite often. Um, and the other thing with the technical side is that... Um, there is a lot of burnout there. I don't think we've talked about this enough. I don't think people know about this enough. But being a cybersecurity threat intelligence analyst or a malware kind of a incident respondent is often like being a surgeon. You have to be on call. You have to be ready. You have to be caught up with the latest methods. You can't slack. There's a lot of stress that goes on there. And these people have a very short life cycle in terms of their field. And we need to think about how we cycle these people into management and into teaching and into education. So we have this sort of evolving door, like maybe you have an airline industry where you only have a certain amount of years where you can be a functional pilot. And then at some point you got to focus to training and organization and leadership. Right on. And, and Brandon, then sort of maybe to close it out, looking ahead, what kind of academic research uh, and or policy analysis do we need? to push our strategic conversation forward? I think we need a lot more analysis and a lot more war games. I think there has been too much in this field that's based on conjecture and hypotheticals. There's been too much, we should, we could, maybe, that's not the way we build strategy. I don't think we have a lot of high-level conversations on how things actually work. So better data analysis, better war games, better simulations, all these things are at the forefront right now. And these are the things that we need to push forward with. We don't understand a lot about decision-making at the national level and also about decision-making at the personal level about how becoming more dependent might make this threat even more important and more critical and how we deal with these sorts of dependencies and how we deal with this kind of this idea now that we are attached to our phones and that digital connection connectivity is a human right. These are things we need to start to think of in that, you know, it may not sound very critical to lose Netflix, but in a time when you're isolated right now and you have no other connections, Losing the internet would be devastating. And that's a new dependency we need to deal with. And I don't think we've thought enough about how that affects us psychologically and biologically, too. Well, it sounds like uh, our cyberspace strategy remains a work in progress, but it, it sounds like things are a little better than I personally thought they were at least a, a week or two ago. So <laughs> I appreciate the update. Um, so thanks, folks. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everyone for listening uh, in the era of the coronavirus. 
uh, to continue the conversation safely on Twitter, as long as the internet holds out, uh, you can find us at at Power Problems. And of course, if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast.